Here at Hamilton Road, we're learning to follow Jesus Christ. He's rescued us from death and he's bringing us into a new kind of life. So everything about how we live our lives, we're learning from Jesus Christ. One of the challenges for a person who wants to follow Jesus Christ is how to live in a world that doesn't follow him. How do we live among people who don't love God, who haven't yet submitted to Jesus? That's what we're going to be thinking about here this morning. We aren't the first people who've had to think about our relationship with the people in the world around us who don't yet love God. The question's as old as the people of God, and it goes right back to our father Abram. We're going to see that in this morning's passage uh, as we pick up the story halfway through chapter 18. We're going to pay attention to four things. Sodom's sin, God's judgment, Abram's pleading, and God's grace. So first of all, Sodom's sin. We read about Sodom's sin actually in chapter 19. But before we come to that, notice how Abram's made aware of it. Last week in the first half of chapter 18, we learned about three visitors who'd come to Abram and Sarah. Well, here in verse 16, we learn that when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And then we're shown intriguingly the mind of God. God asks himself, verse 17, shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? <clears throat> Please don't miss this. It's absolutely remarkable. The Lord has plans for Sodom and he doesn't want to keep them from Abram. Why? Well, it, it's because Abram's increasingly becoming his friend. And friends don't keep secrets. Perhaps you think I'm taking liberties when I call Abram God's friend. Not so. Abram's referred to as God's friend three times in the Bible. Once in Chronicles, once in Isaiah, once more in James. This man who's just had dinner with God is becoming God's confidant. God's choosing to tell him what's on his heart. Abram's not the only person in the Bible who's described as a friend of God. So in Exodus 22, we're told that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. That God wants us as friends is never clearer than in the person of Jesus Christ. In John 15, we read an account of Jesus his last night with his disciples. What is it he says to them? I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus' disciples are becoming his friends. He loved sharing with them the mind of God. Isn't that incredible? Can, can you think of anything better than to be befriended by the living God. If you still have some picture of, of faith or Christian discipleship that's, that's purely forensic, that's all about learning ideas about God and, and agreeing with the truth, if you have an idea of life with God that doesn't involve a growing friendship with Jesus Christ, then let me tell you, the faith you're looking for, the discipleship you're engaged in, it doesn't exist. Christian life is about becoming a friend of Jesus. And so I ask you, 
Are you a friend of Jesus? Does he talk to you like God talked with Abram? I sometimes try to talk to God during my day. One of my favorite definitions of prayer is talking to God about the things we're doing together. That, that very much is the feel of the passage with God talking to Abraham. I do it sometimes, but I'd like to learn to do it often. And I'd lo love to learn to do it always. Always open to the Lord to be speaking with him, to be hearing from him, always conversing, always keeping company with God. Now there's something we can all grow into. Abram's a friend of God and God keeps no secrets from him. What is it that God says to Abram? Talks to him about Sodom's sin, verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous that I'll go down and see what they've done to see if it's as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Last week we learned how Abraham hosted a party of three, and at this point in the narrative, the party splits into two. Verse 22 tells us that the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abram remained standing before the Lord. The opening verse of chapter 19 makes it clearer how the party has split. We're told that it's two angels who arrive at Sodom. So it seems that the Lord has stayed a little bit longer with his friend Abram, while the two angels have gone to inspect the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What did the angels find? We didn't read it. I did you a favor. Have a look. Sodom is a vile place, the opening verses of chapter 19. We get an immediate sense, a sense of foreboding. Verse 1, the angels arrive at the city in the evening. The Hebrew word for evening is simply the word black. This is a dark, dark place. It's a dangerous place that when the two visitors tell Lot that they intend to spend the night in the city square, he pleads with them to come into his home. He knows that they won't be safe, and subsequent events confirm Lot's worst fears. Before long, there's a crowd at Lot's door. They're demanding that he bring his guests out so that they can have sex with them. This is a truly kind of awful sexual offense, homosexual gang rape. And it's not just a small crowd either. Have a look. Verse 4, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, this is, this is everyone. Whole city involved in this horrific act. The biblical account of these events make for, for horrific reading. I, I'm just not going to dwell on them. By the time they've seen these events unfold, the angels have seen enough. Their inspections left them in no doubt about Sodom's sin. Sometimes I hear people talking nowadays as if our generation had a monopoly on sin, as though the world were somehow better in the good old days. Well, here we've gone back to some of the very earliest old days, and we're finding that the world's full of the vilest kind of sin. You see, the world's always been as much a cesspool then as it is now. The world was full of sin then, for the same reason that it's full of sin now. It's because it's full of people. Sinful people. 
Sometimes I hear people talking about particularly kind of vile sins. I think this is what we do in British culture nowadays. So long as I don't abuse children, then I'm okay. So long as I'm not intolerant, then I'm not a sinner. We create our own standards and judge ourselves righteous by our own standards. And all the while, God's word speaks the truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans chapter 3. Sodom was sinful then. Banger is sinful now. And it's not only the paramilitary or the drug pusher in Banger's housing estates who's sinful. So are the middle classes in Belly Home, in Bangor West. Bangor is a sinful city. We've thought about Sodom's sin. I'd like to take a moment just now to think about God's judgment. I'm going to invite my theology professor, Dr. Packer, to join the conversation. Let me make one basic point about God's judgment and answer one objection to God's judgment using, in both cases, material from God the Judge, a chapter in Packer's classic, Knowing God. First of all, a point about God's judgment. Packer says that the heart of the justice which expresses God's nature is retribution. The rendering to persons what they have deserved, for this is the essence of the judge's task. To reward good with good and evil with evil is natural to God. Packer goes on to say about this retributive nature of God, that this is one of the basic facts of life, and being made in God's image, we all know in our hearts that this is right. This is how it ought to be. Once he's made that basic point about God's judgment, Packer answers a question about God's judgment that's on many minds nowadays. If God's retributive justice is really how the world should be, why do we shy away from the idea of God as judge? Why do we feel that judgment is unworthy of a loving God? Maybe you struggle with that question. Packer answers the question with another question. Would a, a God who didn't care about right and wrong be an admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins and his own saints, be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would not be an imperfection. Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being is that he's committed himself to judge the world. Thank you, Dr. Packer. And so it turns out that human beings are wired to long for fair judgments and also that God is the one truly fair judge. I hope that that brief look at judgment leaves you persuaded along with Abram Chapter 18, verse 25. We're now expecting, will not the judge of all the world do right? The angels have visited Sodom. 
their inspections left them in absolutely no doubt about Sodom's sin and its ripeness for destruction. God's judgment will fall on this sinful city. Sodom was sinful then. Banger is sinful now. God's judgment hung over Sodom then. God's judgment hangs over Bangor now. So far we've thought about Sodom's sin and about God's judgment. This is the context in which Abram lives. This is where our story takes place. This is where Abram is living among people who don't love God and are coming under God's judgment. What will he do? We're going to see now in the second half of chapter 18, the passage which we read a moment ago, Abram pleads for sinners. It's a curious passage in some ways. I'm sure you, you maybe found it weird. Abram bargaining with God. Abram pleads with God for these people because he believes that prayer changes things. This is, I was reading this week, I hadn't thought of it before, but one person was saying that this is the first extended prayer in the whole of the Bible. Abram pleads with God because he believes that he'll be heard. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare it for the sake of the 50 righteous people who live in it? The Lord's listening. He's paying attention. And he relents, verse 26. If I can find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. You can almost see the wheels turning in Abram's head. Do I dare keep going? He dares. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, could I negotiate you down to 45? God agrees to that request too. And Abram keeps whittling the number down, 40, 30, 20 and then one last shot. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? As I say, it's a curious passage. And the theological questions it raises might threaten to derail us at this point. I, I don't want to follow that rabbit trail today. The point I want you to notice, a point reinforced in the teaching of Jesus, is that it pays to haggle with God. One writer says, biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, shameless, indecorous. It's more like haggling in an oriental bazaar than the polite monologues found in our churches. Abram haggled with God. He pleaded with God that his judgment might not fall on the sinful people of Sodom. Sodom. Friends, I ask you, are we pleading with God for the sinful people of Bangor? Are we pleading for our sons and our daughters, our colleagues and our neighbors, our friends and our enemies, our classmates in school? I'm going to guess that at least some of us aren't. And the reason I'll guess that is because I know how little I've given myself, 
how little I've given myself to pleading for lost people living under the judgment of God. I'm guessing that some of you are in the same boat with me. Shall we change this? Will you join me in praying for the people of our city who are living under the judgment of God? Will will you come and join me Wednesday evenings at our prayer gathering? Uh, You you might say, listen, Christoph, I tried going to the prayer meeting. What we did there is we prayed for the church and we prayed for ministers and we prayed for missionaries. We didn't pray for lost people. And you're right. We've got that wrong. Hamilton Road should be and should always have been praying for the lost people of Bangor. We promised that we would. I've been doing a bit of work to get ready for this presbytery consultation. Uh, I found an ancient document from 2010, our mission plan from 2010. Here's what we said. Imagine Hamilton Road as a church where there's a consistent supplication for the nation, the church, and the local community in which God has placed us. We committed ourselves to this action point, to pray regularly and particularly for our parish and community. We said all that in 2010, but we haven't done it. So let's start. Let's start to pray for the lost people of Bangor and let's persist. Let's haggle with the living God as Abram did. I've talked about corporate prayer. What about your discipleship groups? I've been reading this week about the evangelistic zeal of Wesley's early Methodists. They were absolutely committed to reaching the lost who lived around them under God's judgment. In their class meetings, their discipleship group meetings, after times of prayer and praise, do you know what they did? They set aside some time to write letters to people they knew, pleading them to come to faith in Jesus. I don't know if we'll write letters, But we could, we could be start with praying, thinking about how to, to reach our, our neighbors for Christ. What about your private prayer? Are you praying for your family, your colleagues, your neighbors, and your friends? Are, are you inviting them along to, to church, somewhere where they can hear about the living God and his salvation offered in Jesus? Do you, like me, suffer from a poor memory? You go away today with a bit of fresh guilt and you think, yes, I'm going to start doing that. And by the time it's Tuesday, it's all gone again. I'm using an app at the moment called Inner Room. It comes from the 24-7 prayer guys. It's fantastic. I'm praying for about 70 or 80 people regularly because I've found a way to do it. Friends, Bangor is a sinful city. Its people live under the judgment of God. Let's plead with the living God to save them. Let's come back one last time to the text, the remaining part of chapter 19. Following his inspection of the city, God has seen Sodom's sin. The righteous judge will judge this city. Now, Abram's been pleading and praying for the city, so God has agreed to relent if ten righteous people can be found. There aren't 
ten righteous people. So God sets his judgment in motion. But he won't do it before he's rescued Abram's nephew Lot. We see, beginning verse 12, how the angels warn Lot of the coming danger, urge him to leave the city, and finally drag him to danger. If you're still wondering about righteous people, if you're hung up on that definition, and you're imagining that Lot's family qualify, have, have a look. It turns out that Lot and his family are far from righteous. Remember where we find Lot, chapter 19, verse 1. Yes, at the city gate, that means he's on the local council. Lot's not sitting on the edges of Solomon's sinful culture. He's right in the heart of it. Lot's sons-in-law, look at them. They aren't interested in fleeing God's judgment. They think it's all a big joke. Lot his wife, his daughters, they all seem to be dragging their feet. It takes the angels to drag them out of the city towards salvation. And when the angels tell them to go to the mountains in order to get some distance between them and the city, Lot asks, verse 20, can I not stay a wee bit closer? If this guy's going to escape God's judgment, it will be by the skin of his teeth. When the judgment finally falls, Lot's heart is so much still in Sin City that she can't but look back longingly, wishing she could stay. Folks, there aren't ten righteous people in Sodom. There aren't four or even three. The three who do escape, escape reluctantly because a gracious God drags them out to safety. If you have any remaining doubts about the morality of Lot and his daughters who survive. If you think they were saved because they deserve it, there's an episode at the end of chapter 19. Read that. The only reason that anyone gets out of Sodom alive is because of the grace of God. Sodom is vile. Lot and his family are sinful. And yet God rescues Lot and his daughters from destruction. For Abram's sake and by his grace. Friends, it's still the same today. God, the righteous judge, chooses to save sinful people as they put their trust in Jesus Christ. He does it by his grace. At one point in knowing God, Dr. Packer tells us how we sinful people should live in the light of God's coming judgment and grace. He says this, the New Testament is clear. Calling on the coming, call on the coming judge to be your present savior. As judge, he is the law, but as savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now and you'll meet him again as your judge and without hope. Seek him now, and you'll find him, and you'll look forward to your future meeting with him with joy. What should we take away from this passage this morning? Those of us who've already trusted in Jesus Christ should seek to grow Abram's heart for sinful people. We should seek to grow more like the son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who was a friend of sinners who wept over the city of Jerusalem. Let's learn to plead with God for those living under his judgment in this sinful city that they might be saved. Let's do it and persist in it. And for those of us who haven't yet trusted Jesus, surely we must be warned. We, like the citizens of Sodom, live in a sinful city. We live under God's judgment. We must respond to God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't be like Lot's son-in-laws. They thought it was all a big joke. And they're not laughing now. Don't be like Lot's wife longing for sin city so that she's missed out on this greater city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Learn from Lot, even Lot. Imperfect, half-hearted as he is, he allows himself to be caught up in the grace of God, allows the Savior to rescue him. If you need help to respond to God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, please come and speak to me. Speak to somebody you know who knows Jesus. Let them help you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word in its entirety. We thank you for the hard parts as well as the, the nice parts. We thank you particularly for the hard parts when they speak truth to us, which we might rather ignore. Lord, we plead for ourselves and throw ourselves on your grace. Lord, rescue us from your coming judgment as we trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we plead for our city. We pray that lost people in Bangor would open up to your grace and find salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen.